All right, welcome everybody. And uh, sorry I wasn't with you last week, but uh, Dr. Snowberger fills in and he is terrific. And I'm sure those of you who came found him such. And if you didn't, you didn't listen well enough. Because uh, the stuff he gives is, uh, is, is very, very medium, very, very good. But glad to be back. Now, we're back together this week. But next week, no midweek at all, because it's Thanksgiving week. So the next day, next Thursday is Thanksgiving. So on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we uh, never meet. So our kids program, team program, nothing meets next Wednesday. So we'll pick up again two weeks from uh, tonight. But we're on page five. We're on the bottom of page five. And and Yolanda, I'm going I'm going extremely slow for certain people who shall remain nameless. We'll move on when Yolanda comes back. So let me remind you as to what uh, this class is about, as quickly as I can, how to get the most out of your Bible, three parts, survey of the Bible, interpreting the Bible, and applying the Bible. And we're really trying to take the intimidation that the Bible has for a lot of people out of reading and studying the Bible. And it has that intimidation because it's old, because it's large, and because it's, it's diverse. And so we're trying to minimize that, eliminate that, because the Bible's really about just a handful of things. It's about creation, fall, and redemption. Uh, Creation is God giving an orientation to his world, who God is and what he expects from us. The fall, the entrance of sin into God's world, results in a distortion of everything that God made, disorientation, or what our problem is. And then redemption is what God is doing about the problem of sin, or reorientation. So it's about orientation, disorientation, reorientation, creation, fall, redemption. And as you go through the Bible, what you really find you could summarize in one sentence. It's people uh, in situations in the presence of God. People in situations before God. And so if you think of it that way, then you can read through the Bible and fit it into these just handful of categories. And God tells us in uh, his redemption that is in the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that the redemption, what he's going to do about the problem of sin is going to come through the seed of of the woman. So in the very uh, first three chapters of the Bible, you have all three of those major headings that the rest of the Bible is about. You have creation, of course, and then you have the entrance of sin, the fall, but then you also have God saying, Here's how I'm going to redeem the world, through the seed of the woman. And as you move forward then, in the first book of the Bible, chapter 5, focuses on the, the seed of, of the woman. In particular, the line of one of Adam's sons, Seth, and one of sons, uh, Seth's uh, descendants is Noah, and one of Noah's sons is Shem, and one of Shem's descendants is, is Abraham. When you come to chapter 12 in that first book of the Bible, it begins to hone in on the family line of of Abraham. And then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob's name is changed to Israel, 
And he has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And one of those 12 sons is, is Joseph. And Joseph, through a series of circumstances that God oversaw, wound up in Egypt. And at the top of page 5, you see then Joseph entered, Joseph entered Egypt. And then uh, Moses led, number 2 on page 5, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt in the, in the Exodus. They were there as slaves for 430 years. And then uh, Moses is given for Israel the, the law and the plans for the, uh, the tabernacle. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that they disobeyed God by not conquering the land that he had, had promised to them. And then number five on page five, Joshua takes over the mantle of leadership from, uh, from Moses and the, he and the people do go into into the land, and they do uh, conquer uh, everyone that they take on. Ultimately, they lose one battle, but they take they conquer everyone that they take on. But they don't take everyone on, and they don't take everything from everyone that they they take on. And as a result of that disobedience to God. They have a long period of about 300 years where they're ruled by the judges. And you see number six at the bottom of, of page five. And if you'll remember from two weeks ago, there is this refrain four times in the 21 chapters of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did that which was right in his, his own eyes. So it was a, a very dark time, the dark ages for, uh, for, for Israel. And then right after that, after the seventh book of the Bible, the book of Judges, uh, has this dark period recorded. The eighth book of the Bible, the book of Ruth, opens. very first line says, in the days when the judges rule. And God puts these gems of his grace in the midst of the darkness of sin. And you find that throughout the Bible. You'll find people sinning, people disobeying God. And then you'll find God uh, giving his, his grace and his mercy in the book of Ruth is four chapters of God's grace in the days when the judges ruled. So even as dark as all that was, here's a ray of light of, of good news. And we looked at in some depth a couple of weeks ago then the story of the book of Ruth and how that set the stage for a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, a great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, David, to be born in Bethlehem because Boaz was a man of Bethlehem and that's how this pagan woman Ruth from Moab uh, through God's providence, wound up in Bethlehem, marrying Boaz, having children, and one of their descendants, great-grandson, was none other than David, and that's why Bethlehem is called the city of the city of David. And it is through that line uh, that the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, would come. And so we continue then at the bottom of page 5 with the first kings of, of Israel. Remember in the judges, uh, in judges, four times Israel had no king, so everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. And so now, bottom of page five, God gives kings. Saul, David, and Solomon ruled, ruled the land. After the judges came, a time of kings and prophets. The first three kings were Saul, David, and Solomon. Each reigned about forty years, but David was the beginning of the true. Monarchy. So I'd like to spend our time then looking at uh, Saul and David and, and Solomon. So if you turn to the next page, that won't help you much. It'll just give you 
some more space to write stuff if you want to. Uh, we're not checking what stuff you write. We're not checking to whom you write it. I just warn you that God knows. Okay? Just not trying to scare you, but so. Um, but we're going to. I'm going to talk a bit about Saul and David and and Solomon. Saul becomes the first the first king. And in First Samuel chapter eight, First Samuel chapter eight, you have the people asking Samuel, the prophet and priest, for a king. Give us a king. We want to have a king like the other the other nations. And as you read as you read through that account, you find God speaking with the prophet Samuel. As Samuel says, "Hey, they're they're saying they want a king." And God says, give them their king. They're not rejecting you. They're actually rejecting me and my rule. And so God is not pleased about this request for a king because of what motivates it, a rejection of his theocratic rule. But nevertheless, he says, I'm going to give you this this king. Now, it was always God's intention to have a king. And kingship had already been promised uh, Years, years before, but the motivation for requesting a king, namely the, re- the rejection of God's direct theocratic rule, is what angered God. And God says, "Give them, tell them I will give them their king." But in giving them their king, He's going to show them how not obeying God, not following God, is always disastrous. And the king that's given is, is Saul. And God tells Samuel. Tomorrow, you're going to run into a guy. It's my paraphrase, obviously. But you're going to run into a guy who is going to be the the first king of of Israel. And through a series of of circumstances, um, Saul is actually looking for some lost animals. And he and another another servant are looking for these animals. And the servant says, you know, we're near a town where there is a prophet. Let's ask him which way we should go. And so they seek out Samuel... But Samuel has been told the day before that you're going to run into this person who's going to be the next king. And so it's through that conspiracy of circumstances that they come together and Samuel says, I want you to come to to my house and dine. And he tells them what God has in store for him. He's selected as the first king. The the Bible tells us that Saul was uh, tall, that he was head and shoulders, uh, literally, literally a head taller than the other Israelites. Uh, the Bible says so. He was he was the kind of person who carried himself as this as if this would be the kind of person you would want as as the first king. But his reign was disastrous. He disobeyed God by offering the sacrifice of a priest. He was not a priest, and yet he took it upon himself to offer the sacrifice of a priest. And he also disobeyed God in not uh, taking and uh, destroying. All of those that they uh, conquered and his military conquests, he didn't destroy all of them and all of their plunder. In fact, the Bible records that he took the stuff that he wanted, and that was in disobedience to God. And God says to him famously in 1 Samuel 15.22, 1 Samuel 15.22, to obey, you guys remember this? To obey is better than sacrifice. Because you know Samuel's defense was, hey, look, I've offered sacrifice and I've done all of this. And God says, obey. 
This is what I told you to do, and you failed to do it. So to obey is better than sacrifice. And Saul hated David. And he hated David with a, an insane jealousy. And this jealousy came about because uh, the Israelites, uh, women in particular, the Bible tells us, were, were singing the praises of David. That uh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his, his ten thousands. So they're comparing unfavorably Saul to, to David. And this enrages, this enrages Saul. And so he hates David. He tries and plots to kill uh, David. And he, toward the end of his life, uh, he goes so far as to consult with a medium, a witch, to try to have Samuel, who has since died, come back and to and to uh, to counsel to counsel him. So you have this weird thing with him going to a witch from a place called Endor. Endor. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the show Bewitched. <laughs> and you remember the mother-in-law. And her name was Indora. So somebody knew the Bible who produced Bewitched, because that's a weird name. But the witch of Endor in the Bible gave rise to the mother-in-law, Darren's mother-in-law, and uh, Elizabeth Montgomery's mom as, uh, as Endora. And he ultimately, his life is ended as he commits suicide. Saul takes his own, takes his own life. So it's just a disastrous reign. And we, could, we could go on about his reign and all of the problems with it. But that gives you a synopsis of the reign of Saul. You want a king? I'll give you a king, says God. But this is not the king that God would have chosen uh, if it had been done in his timing. And so now, in, as successor to Saul, the, the, the man after God's own heart. And I'll talk a bit about that and what that, what that entails. But the man after God's own heart, David, uh, becomes the king and succeeds Saul. And as uh, David is David is identified as the next king of Israel, uh, the story in 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 16, uh, has the sons of Jesse, David's father, being paraded uh, in order to identify who the who the, the son is going to be, and all of them are paraded before. And God says, no, this is not the one. This is not the one. And Jesse says, well, I'm out of sons. <laughs> and he goes, well, okay, we got the little kid that's out tending the sheep. Well, all right, bring him here. And then it's this one who's going to be the king. Now, in contrast to Saul, head and shoulders, tall, dark, and handsome. I added the dark and handsome. But he's tall, okay? But in contrast to that, you've got, you've got little David. And famously, God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance. Remember this? But God looks on the heart. And so this is, this is the one that God has prepared and the one that God has, has chosen, even though he would not, was certainly not the one that would have been chosen by a free election. If you had Saul and David next to each other in an election, and especially in our telegenic you know, society now, who would be who would be elected? And it, it would not have been David, but God looks on the heart, and this is the one that God had chosen. And God calls him a man after his his own heart. So so what is that? Well, let me give you 
a few qualities about David that are given to us in the story of the life of David that reflect this man after God's own heart. One is his, his courage. David is shown to be, early on, uh, a boy and then a man of, of courage. Of course, starts out with the famous story of David and, and Goliath. And so he's a, he's a man of courage and in his subsequent battles as, as well. But he's also a man of kindness, courage and of kindness. And his kindness is seen in the way he treated Saul. Saul who had this insane jealousy toward him. But, and David had opportunity and reason to kill Saul. But he spared Saul's, Saul's life in kindness to, to Saul. He was a man of loyalty as well. So courage, kindness, and loyalty. His loyalty is seen in his relationship with Saul's son, Jonathan. Uh, and his extreme loyalty to, to him. And then, perhaps most of all, his trust in, his trust in God. His trust in God. I mean, David sinned, as we're going to be reminded of in a bit. Uh, and he had a bunch of children. And several of those children caused him difficulty. One in particular, Absalom, caused him great difficulty. And Absalom was seeking the life of his, of his father. And in the midst of all of Absalom's rebellion and, and treachery, uh, Psalm number three, Psalm three in your in your Bible is written by David, and it's a psalm of his trust in God in the midst of all that's happening with with Absalom. Now I mentioned that Psalm three is written in the context of the David Absalom relationship, and I just want to pause here to say that David wrote seventy three of the hundred and fifty psalms, so nearly half of the Psalms were written by David. And those Psalms have contexts to them. So as you read through the the book of Psalms, bear that in mind, that these Psalms were written, many of them by David, and they were written uh, in a a context of things that were happening in the life of David that are recorded in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So Psalm 3. And that psalm, Psalm number three, expresses David's trust in God in the midst of Absalom's rebellion and betrayal. Now, David gradually becomes the ruler uh, of all of the 12 tribes. He's not initially the ruler of all, all 12. In fact, you'll read of three anointings of David. He's not anointed just once, and he's the king over all of all of Israel. But rather, he's... Uh, king over uh, one tribe and then some more. It's not until the third anointing that he is the king over all 12 of of the tribes. And as king, uh, he did some marvelous things. One is that he recaptured the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back into the possession of, of Israel. Now, you remember the Ark of the Covenant. You know, further up on page five, God gave uh, plans for the uh, tabernacle, gave the ark that was in the midst of the the tabernacle, and it was in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the place where God met with with man, and yet it had been captured by the Philistines. And David 
uh, brings it back. And that gives rise to a famous or infamous incident in the reign of David. As the ark is being brought back and a cart has been constructed in order to transport the ark back to uh, Israel. Uh, God has given very strict instructions about how this holy piece of furniture is to be to be handled. And one of the things God made very clear is you don't touch it. As a matter of fact, it was constructed, designed purposely with, with, with holes that poles went through so that when it's transported, it's not, uh, it's not touched, but only those poles are, are touched. But they have this cart. They're not carrying it out you know, by, the, by these handles. They have it on this cart. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6, that the cart becomes unsteady. And one of the guys attending the transport of the cart was named Uzzah. And Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the cart. And as a result, he is summarily executed by God on the spot. Now let's just stop there for a moment. What is that about? I mean, Uzzah, Uzzah could say, could he not? He could say what some of you are thinking. Oh, no good deed goes unpunished. You know, cut a guy, a break. He's just trying to save the ark from hitting the hitting the ground. This is a sacred piece of furniture. It's gonna it's gonna tip over. So he's just trying to help out. And you kill him? So what do you think about that? What lessons do you draw from that? Now, part of the reason I'm asking you that is I think it's important that we draw lessons out of these stories. That's why God gave them. All scripture is profitable. Further, when we get to the third component of our course here next year, the third component is applying the Bible. And we're going to talk about this incident from the life of of Uzzah. So I'm giving you a warm-up now. Not that anybody will remember when we go into next year. (laughs) But what do you get out of that? How do you apply that to you and to me? God says, don't do this. And Uzzah's just trying to help out. And he does it. And God punishes him. All right, how about this? God doesn't need your help, one, and he doesn't need my help. Do what he tells you to do. Don't make up your own rules. I'm on a roll here, okay? He doesn't need your help. Don't make up your rules. Now, how does that apply, though? I mean, okay, Brown, next time I'm transporting a cart (laughs) that I'm not supposed to touch, I won't. Is that the application? No. Next time you're in a situation where God has told you what to do and what not to do, do it or don't do it accordingly to what God has said, and then leave, hear this, leave the results to him. So I can't tell you how many times. You know, and I I got another request today for somebody to say, will you meet with me? And uh, I'm looking for you, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm looking for you to tell me it's okay to leave my husband. Well, don't hold your breath. I mean, I'll tell you it's okay to leave your spouse when God tells you it's okay to leave your spouse. 
And God has spilled some ink on that. So it's not, it ain't working. And I don't like it anymore. So I'm going to write my own rules. God has said, this is what you do. And you leave the results to me. So what is the person who does that thinking in his or her mind? What are they thinking? They're thinking, there's no way out of this. It'll never get any better. I've heard it. (laughs) It'll never get any better. There's no way out of this. And the truth is they don't know any of that, do they? They don't know that. Only God knows what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year with that person. I don't either, so I'm not going to sit and say, it'll get better, he or she will get better. I can't say that. But you can't either. But they've decided they know what needs to happen. And therefore, we're going to write our own rules. And God's telling us through incidents like Uzzah, you don't write your own rules. You do what I tell you to do. And you let me take care of the results. You know, it's one thing when we're reading about some guy from 3,000 years ago. And that's what we're reading about. 3,000 years ago. And a guy putting his hand out to steady a cart and God kills him. And you go, wow, that's weird. But it's another thing when we have to apply it to ourselves. God says to do something, you do it. And you do it without question. And you leave the results to God. So whatever thing you've got going on in your life that God has spoken to, and you're saying, well, there's got to be, you know, there's got to be some fine print on that. There's got to be an exception clause to that. God doesn't have these exception clauses. He tells you what to do, and you leave the rest to him. You trust him. What would he have done to steady the cart had Uzzah not put his hand out? I have no idea. But is God capable of steadying the cart? And and, and 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 Uzzah obeying and it's still getting done? Of course it is. And of course he is. You had your hand up. Yeah, I, um, I think for me the hardest part about that story of Uzzah was that it seems like it was a, a reflex. You know, it could have been just a... You're just walking along, and and something starts coming at you. you automatically, just mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's the hardest part yeah. for me right. with that story is that he could have just been right. a reflex reaching out. But good, good point. <laughs> and and I bet it was okay. Could have been. If I were a betting man, yeah, <laughs> I would bet it was. However, um, we're responsible to train our minds. So that our reflexes are godly reflexes. I mean, if somebody if somebody is nailing, you know, hammering a nail, and they hit their thumb, and their reflex is to say, "Use God's name in vain," are they responsible for that? Re- Aren't they responsible to train their minds to have other responses? <clears throat> And these guys were given very explicit instructions. And this is similar to using God's name in vain. It's violating the holiness of God to touch the ark. And God has made that absolutely clear. So it's not just, you know, I'm just going on and I just mindlessly do this thing. God holds us responsible for training our minds so that our responses and our reflexes are a reflection of him 
and his character in the moment. So he can't plead. And the guy who uses the Lord's name in vain and it just slipped out, isn't that what we would say? And Jesus would say, out of the overflow of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. So we want to claim temporary insanity. You know, that's not really me. That's not the way I roll. And yet Uzzah's, Uzzah's character and his failure to appreciate the absolute holiness of God and the absolute sovereignty of God in that moment came out. So it is not just, you know, a, a knee jerk, you hit my physical reaction. This is a spiritual reaction that was a failure to prepare for the moment in which his heart is going to be revealed. And God holds us responsible for that. Yes? Like when we read that story or the people who were eyewitnesses to what happened that day, none of them or us has the ability to see to the heart of Uzzah. God did. God never makes mistakes. So even if we don't understand it, we go back to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that says trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding because our own understanding tells us to do that knee-jerk. Yeah, that passage, we, we look at it and we say, wow. Yeah, the mere fact that God did this, the mere fact that God did this yeah. means it was a right judgment. Exactly. And therefore, must have been more than just a, a reflex uh, reaction. It's a just judgment on someone who has disobeyed the command of God. So, guys and gals, I'm just telling you, as you read through those stories, don't just go through that and go, wow, that's, that's weird. Poor Uzzah. Yikes. Glad I wasn't there for that. Okay? Think to yourself, okay, how, how are there equivalent situations in which God has said what to do or said what not to do? And I find what I want to do running up against that or what I think ought to happen. And then I go and do that. It's disobedience to God. And God has the right to summarily execute every one of us when that happens. He has the right to do that. It's in his mercy that he doesn't do so. Yes? This is a plug for the ladies Bible study. Oh. The yeah. um, preemptive training your mind. Mm. Is that in there? It's so in there. Is it? Yeah. Preemptive training of the mind. <laughs> what a cool phrase. All right. I should have said it that way. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, Good. for wisdom, for living wisdom, Amen. and this chapter is even on your feelings. Hmm. God teaches us in the Psalms. Good. We express our feelings and how we should feel rightly before That book is excellent. <laughs> oh, good. Well, good. Thanks for that plug. Did you all hear that? And we've got one copy left. So you can all trample each other to try to get it at the uh, information center. we got four more on the way. Just as an aside, I just want to vent for a moment. Uh, I ordered four more copies of that book, The Wisdom of God, uh, about ten days ago. The church has an Amazon Prime account. You know what that is? Free shipping. Gets here in two days. Here's the thing. Amazon gets to pick who ships it. They normally have picked UPS to do that, which has worked out fine. Now they've decided, I guess to save some shekels, 
that the United States Postal Service. My dad works at the post office. And there are wonderful people who work for the post office. So what I'm going to say now is present company and fathers accepted. Okay? And son-in-laws. But you guys have a, a son-in-law? Okay, yeah. No, certainly none of this applies to any of that. But whoever delivers to us doesn't want to get out of the truck. And so our four copies go back to Amazon. Oh, my goodness. Now, we pay for a, a post office box at the post office, and we pay extra for an oversized one to put parcels in. And you were visited last week by a postal employee. I was out of town, but actually came in. So got out of the truck or out of the car, at least for that. To say, hey, you guys need to have a mailbox out here, for which means that we don't have to get out of the truck. That's what that means. Okay. Well, as I say, we pay for a we pay for an oversized PO box for this very thing. So if you guys don't want to bring it in the door like UPS does, then leave it in our oversized box. Obviously, if we have to break down and get a mailbox, but still, I don't want a mailbox for parcels. You know, parcels are just that. So anyway, I feel better having vented. And I just wish that every postal employee were like Emily's thoughts. <laughs> That's the moral of the story, right? Yes. Whoever orders that has to put the post box in So our four copies went back, and then I've changed our shipping address to say P.O. box and, and the street address so that they can do whatever. If they're feeling good, they can get out and bring it here. If they're not, you can take it to the P.O. box. So we've got four more coming, and they may arrive. We shall see. But right now we got one. So you guys can fight over that. All right, so captured the ark, brought the ark back, and it was in the bringing of the ark back that the whole Uzzah incident occurred. He established Jerusalem, did David, as the capital of, of Israel. But he also sinned grievously, as we know in the life of David. And he sinned grievously by committing adultery. And he um, tried to cover it up. And in that cover-up, made arrangements so that the husband of Bathsheba, the one, woman with whom he committed adultery, was slain in battle. And he thought he had successfully covered all this up. But of course, he never covered anything up from God. And God sends Nathan, the prophet, to confront him. And Nathan confronts him just reading that story. And Nathan's confrontation with, with David is instructive on how to confront somebody with sin. You know, he, he comes uh, and, and creatively has David recognize his own sin, tells a story. And then says, what do you think about the man who would do something like the story I just told you? And David's just furious. He says, the man should be killed. Mm -hmm. And then famously, Nathan says, in the King James, thou art the man. Mm -hmm. Statements like that that the King James comes in handy for. Thou art the man. You are the man. And David's stunned that his cover-up has been revealed. But he's also cut to the heart. And God uses that. For David to repent. And two weeks ago I told you that Psalm number 51 is 
in the context of David having been exposed by by Nathan, and it is his pouring out his heart and his repentance. Now, what about that? Now you got David, and David is all of these great things, and David did all of these great things, and then David goes and does this. So where does that put you as you follow the storyline of the Bible? Well, here's the way you should think of this. That in the first part of your Bible, God has established three offices of prophet and priest and king. Mm -hmm. And already by the time you get to 1 and 2 Samuel, you've already seen all three of these in action. You've seen a prophet like Moses. And yet Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land, remember. Because Moses disobeyed God. And remember, Moses murdered an Egyptian. So Moses, for all of the things he accomplished and for all the great things he did, he's an imperfect prophet. And then you've got priests. You've got priests like Eli that you read about in 1 Samuel. And Eli has these two sons, Hophni and and Phinehas. And they are, they're not just bad, bad boy. They're horrible. They're blasphemers. And and Eli is a, a very imperfect priest. And, and then kings. And you've got Saul as a king. We've seen the disastrous reign of Saul. And now even in David, a man after God's own heart. He's a quite imperfect king. Now what all of that's doing is setting you up, setting us up for the need for someone who will come who is not an imperfect, but a perfect prophet and priest, and king. And that one will be Jesus. So part of the reason that God has these flaws laid out for these people who otherwise accomplish, in in many cases, great things, and have good character, but they don't have perfect character. And there's a need for one who has perfect character and can fulfill them the roles perfectly of prophet and priest and king. And then the last thing with regard to David's reign is God gives David a covenant. And we call it the Davidic then, David, the the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. So there's been the covenant that God has given with Abraham. There's been the Mosaic covenant, Deuteronomy 28. The Abrahamic covenant is, as I pointed out several weeks ago, an unconditional covenant. It's God saying, Not based on conditions, just based upon my God's promise. I am going to do these things. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a great seed. I'm going to give you a land. It's going to happen. The Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant. If you do these things, you will be blessed. If you fail to do these things, you will experience these curses. That's a conditional covenant. And the Davidic Covenant is another unconditional covenant. And God says a number of things in that covenant. One is that David had determined that he, David, wanted to build a temple for God. And David said, or God says to David, uh, I will have a temple constructed for me, but you're not the one to build it. It's going to be your son who's going to to build it. But I'm going to uh, do this through your son, uh, Solomon. But as... Part of this unconditional covenant that God makes, the kingdom is only going to come through your line, the Davidic line. 
Now remember the king just before David. The first king was who? Saul. And Saul came from the tribe of of Benjamin. Do you guys remember? I, I said it a few times, but do you remember the tribe of the 12 tribes through whom the Messiah is going to come? It's Judah. And David is through the line of, of Judah. And God reaffirms what Genesis 49.10, Genesis 49.10 says about the scepter not departing from, from Judah, reaffirms that through this descendant of Judah, David, the kingdom is only going to come through through your line. And then as you come through the, the New Testament, in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, there are some things that are repeated from the, the Davidic covenant. Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and through 33. The angel says to, to Mary, you will be with child and give birth to a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, of those promises that were originally given to David, now the ultimate son of David has come in Jesus. And two of those things are yet to happen. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will never end. Those two things will happen when Jesus returns. But the angel is reaffirming that now it's through Jesus, this ultimate son of David, that the promises made to David in the Davidic covenant are going to be fulfilled. And when you get to the very last chapter of the Bible, book of Revelation and chapter 22, here's what the Bible says. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. So in just the very last chapters of the Bible, this Davidic covenant that God makes unconditionally with David is then uh, repeated as Jesus has returned and he reminds us that he's the ultimate son of David, the one who would rule, promised to David in that covenant God gave. Then you have the third king. you got Saul, you got David, and then you've got Solomon, son of David. And David wanted to build the temple. David is told, you're not going to do it, your son is going to do it. That son is Solomon. He is the son of Bathsheba. So David has a son through his dalliance with Bathsheba that, that dies. But he also has he also has Solomon through through Bathsheba. And it's Solomon who builds the temple for God. The temple is larger and it's a permanent structure as opposed to the tabernacle. Remember the tent of meeting, the tabernacle? It's patterned after the tabernacle, but it's larger, and instead of being a tent that is taken up and put down, it's a permanent structure. It's exactly twice the size of the tabernacle. It's 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 
and 45 feet high. It took seven years uh, to complete. It was completed in the 11th year of Solomon's reign. It involved, the temple involved, 100,000 Israelites. 80,000 stonecutters and 3,300 foremen. This is a massive project. Seven years, 100,000 Israelites, 80,000 stonecutters, 3,300 foremen. The floors and the walls of the temple were overlaid with gold. It had 10 tables of showbread and 10 lampstands. Now remember the tabernacle had one of each. The the temple has ten of each. In equivalent uh, dollars today, it's estimated that the the temple involved $77 billion of gold. $10 billion of silver. And then if you add the timber that came from Lebanon to frame it in, you've got a structure that costs about $100 billion to construct. Solomon paid the king of Tyre a million bushels of wheat and 850 gallons of pure olive oil for the timber to create the shell for the for the temple. At the dedication for the temple, 120,000 sheep were offered in sacrifice. 120,000. 22,000 oxen. This is the this is the biggest sacrifice ever. Um, Solomon wrote the books of Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, that is Solomon's, and many of the Proverbs. But, like his father David, he had his issues. (coughs) Remember, he he asked God for wisdom. God gave that wisdom. He was the wisest man on earth. He demonstrated that wisdom in incidents like uh, the two women who claimed the baby. And to this day, we talk about wisdom the wisdom and splitting the baby because of what uh, Solomon's wisdom in resolving that dispute. But as king, he violated uh, Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17. That says this. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself. Let me just stop there. (laughs) Solomon had 40,000 horses. And he had 12,000 horsemen to, to ride those horses. So the king must not acquire great numbers of, of horses. He must not take many wives. Anybody remember the number? 700 wives. 300 concubines. Yeah. So 1,000 women. And he must not accumulate large amounts 
of silver and gold. Uh, the Bible says that Solomon's yearly income was the equivalent of a half billion dollars a year in gold and silver. His um, The vessels that he drank out of were made of gold. He had an ivory throne, but ivory wasn't good enough. The ivory was overlaid with gold. It had six steps to it. It had 12 lions on two on each of the six steps surrounding it. And Solomon also established an iron smelting factory. So here's a guy with everything. All the things that the world wants. Money, sex, and power. Those three things. Money, sex, and power. He had all of them in absolute abundance. Toward the end of his life, I'm convinced that the book of Ecclesiastes he wrote toward the end of his life. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes and the 12 chapters there, with that in mind, that this is written by Solomon, that guy that I just told you about, with all that fabulous wealth, with all of that unlimited power, with all of those women, he had all of the things that the world chases after, and yet he writes Ecclesiastes, and do you remember the refrain in Ecclesiastes? Meaningless. Vanity. And what he's, what he's doing in Ecclesiastes is he's giving you the wisdom of someone who has experienced all of this and found it to be wanting, found it to be empty. And so I told, I told my girls, I told our young people when I used to do teen work, um, and I tell you that experience is the best teacher, especially when it's somebody else's experience. See, you don't have to experience it because other people have. So you don't have to make the same mistakes they did. And this is what this is what wisdom is. That's why then you get to the book of Proverbs and what do you have Solomon saying? Listen, my son. Over and over, listen to me. May these words be pure gold to you. Think about that. May these words be gold to you. Not physical gold. May my words, may my instruction be gold to you. And so experience is the best teacher, especially when somebody else is, and God has given us that experience in, in his word. So Ecclesiastes is actually a great book for people to learn through if you understand who wrote it and the circumstances under which he wrote it. Later in his life, after having unlimited money and sex and power, and he goes through all of them in that book. And he says all of them are found wanting. All right, with that, we could turn to page six. Actually, we already filled in page six, didn't we, or did we not? Yes. Okay. All right. So page seven. Wow. Let's just keep turning. It just feels good. Just keep turning, all right? So page seven. 
So this is the second 2,000 years. So the first 2,000 years are in the are in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Covers 2,000 years of, of history. But then the rest of the Old Testament is another 2,000 years. So the Old Testament covers 4,000 years of history. The first 2,000 of those are in those first 11 chapters of the first book. But then the rest of your Old Testament... And then the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, all of that is a total of 2,000 years. And that's why then we've got three parts to that 2,000 years. So the top of page 7 says that the second 2,000 years, part 2, from David to Daniel and the end of the, and the, end of the Old Testament. This section covers the period after David, 1000 BC, and on to Daniel, the 500s before Christ, and the end of the Old Testament, the 400s BC. This era can be divided into five events, which are numbered 8 to 12. And the first of those, number 8, is the kingdom split. After Solomon, the kingdom split in two. So if you care to jot down any uh, a, a date next to number 8 there, it's in 931, 931 B.C. 931 B.C. that Solomon's reign ends and the kingdom is, is split. And the kingdom is split after having been united under David and under his son Solomon. Now the kingdom is going to be split into north and south. And the reason it's going to be split, God says, is because of Solomon's sin, including... Uh, <coughs> Uh, the fact that he was harsh with uh, with the uh, the Israelites unnecessarily, and because of his sin, God says, "I'm going to split the kingdom," and that's what number eight is. After Solomon, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom was called Israel, and the southern kingdom Judah. The first king in the north was Jeroboam. That's one of Solomon's soldiers, and the first king in the south was Rehoboam, Solomon's son. So the, the kingdom is split is split in, in 931. And now this split of the kingdom becomes very important for the rest of the Old Testament. And here's why. A couple of events occur that we'll see in the succeeding paragraphs there uh, with regard to these kingdoms. Each of them is taken captive. Each of the kingdoms is, is conquered and taken captive. And, and you have books in your Old Testament from prophets that God would send to each of these kingdoms, the north and the south. So some of the prophets that you read in the Old Testament, some of the names like Isaiah and, and Daniel and Ezekiel and Haggai and so on, those are all prophets and those were spokesmen for God that he sent to speak on his behalf to the people of one of those two kingdoms. So we're going to give you a chart later in your notes that shows you which prophet spoke to which of the kingdoms, the, you know, the north or the, or the south, and whether or not they spoke you know, before the exile or after the exile. And so knowing these pivotal events, these two exiles for the, north and the northern and southern kingdom, will help you now to put together 
where these books fit into the history of, of God's people. So number nine there, the northern kingdom was exiled to Assyria. Exiled to Assyria. The northern kingdom called Israel had 19 kings and they were all bad. This kingdom lasted about 200 years and was captured by and exiled to Assyria. For the most part, the Israelites did not return to the land of Canaan until the time Israel became a nation in 1948. So this happened in the year 722, 722 B.C. And then you have the southern kingdom being exiled to Babylon. Called Judah, 19 kings and one queen. Some were good, some were bad. Judah lasted about 300 years and was then captured and exiled to Babylon. This happened in 586 B.C. 586 B.C. So that, those events, the splitting of the kingdom into north and south, the taking into exile of each at different times, 722 and 586, then puts in motion for you uh, the bulk of the rest of your Old Testament. You've got all of these prophets that God sends to speak to the people, some speaking to Israel, some speaking to Judah, some before the exile, some after, some during the exile as well. So we're going to see those uh, as we as we go forward. This would be a good place for us to, to stop. So I'm giving you a three-minute reprieve. Okay? Uh, but this would be a good spot for us to uh, pick up in two weeks. We don't meet next week because of Thanksgiving, okay?